Hey, once you make a decision, you gotta live with it, right? I mean, that's what we're taught. No regrets. Well, turns out regrets can be the very thing we need to achieve our goals. Hi, everyone. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Boulder. And, man, on this program, you're going to learn how to harness the transformative power of our most misunderstood emotion, and we're talking about regret. Best-selling author Daniel Pink will explain how looking backwards can actually move us forward. Man, I need to hear that. Thank you for that. And then, with hits like Come and Get It Day After Day and No Matter What, Badfinger was one of the most popular groups of the 70s. Guitarist Joey Mullen will tell us how he made it out alive and what he's learned about life after tragedy. Also, she was an Emmy Award-winning TV news reporter until her mother, her aunt, and her sisters were all stricken with breast cancer. What Ellen Jaffe Jones did to change her life and what she believes is the key to reducing the risk of life-threatening illnesses. Ordinary people living extraordinary lives. Saddle up, folks. It's time to start growing bolder. out of curiosity, how did you happen to join us today? And I'm just wondering that because if we understood, maybe we could figure out how to reach everybody. All we need to do is find an expert on human behavior. And if anybody is one, it just might be our next guest. He's written in-depth, eye-opening books about things like What really motivates people? He's looked at the science of selling. He's studied the secrets of perfect timing. And all these books have been New York Times bestsellers, by the way. But his latest may be his best yet. He believes, out of all of our emotions, the one that's most misunderstood is regret. But he says regret can be all you need to live your best life. The book is called The Power of Regret, How Looking Backwards Moves Us Forward. And here is Daniel Pink. Dan, how are you? I am good. Thanks for having me. Well, I, I like this one. The, the other ones are almost obvious by their titles. And this one you have to explain because, I mean, my whole life, every time I've done something that you might regret, people tell you, oh, forget it. Leave it be. Don't dwell on it. Move on. Are they wrong? Yes, they are <laughs> dead wrong. They're giving. I'm sorry. They've given you terrible advice throughout your life. Uh, sorry to break that news to you, but the um, but but believe me, you're not alone. Uh, and 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 here's the thing: we have this philosophy of no regrets, and it's a bad philosophy. It's not an effective blueprint for living. It makes some intuitive sense. Like, oh, why, why invite pain when you can avoid it? But, um, but here's what 50 years of science tells us. Everybody has regrets. Everybody has regrets. The, truly, the only people without regrets are people with are, are five-year-olds because their brains haven't developed enough, Bill. Uh, pe- people who have neurodegenerative disorders and sociopaths. The rest of us have regrets. Uh, regrets make us human. Um, it's one of the most common emotions that we have. And you have to ask yourself, if this thing that's a little bit painful is so common, what's the point? Why does it exist? It's because regrets make us better. Regrets are our most useful emotion if we deal with them properly. If we get beyond the crappy advice that you got and say, no regrets is not a sign of courage. What's courage is staring your regrets in the eye and doing something about them. 
thinking about them, learning from them, studying how we got them in the first place. Well, look, here you are, Dan. You've cranked out another great book, and you've really hit another bullseye on one of those hot-button topics because we're all now starting to think back, wow, maybe some of my regrets could have propelled me farther than I let them. But but don't you regret the other topics you didn't write about or even <laughs> regret not just taking the time off and not writing anything at all? You know what? I don't because I'm actually, you know, as as you know, uh, you know, as you know from talking to me in the past, writing a book is really, really hard. So I only pick topics that I am genuinely interested in, and and I find this topic so incredibly interesting to the point where I actually became so interested in this topic, I put aside another book on a totally different topic uh, because I found this one more compelling, and and you know, I have no regrets about doing that because. What I'm trying to do here is is really reclaim this emotion. This emotion of regret is one of the most common emotions we have. And the reason it's one of the most common, it's that it's also one of the most useful. The problem is, is that no one ever taught us how to do it right. Well, and probably one of the reasons there, Dan, is we do everything we can probably as human nature to avoid negative emotions, to kind of like distance ourselves from things that maybe embarrass us. After all, those are the ones that get us fired, you know, those negative emotions. They they can make our friends and loved ones want to get away from us. They They fill our minds with negativity. Aren't negative emotions the worst? The negative emotions can be not great. There's no question about that. Um, and, and believe me, I am all for positive emotions. We should have a lot of positive emotions in our life. Our positive emotions should outnumber our negative emotions. There's no question about that. The thing is, we want to have a few negative emotions because they're useful. You, think, you can think of it as like an investment portfolio. You don't want to have all positive emotions. You only want to have negative emotions. Imagine if we didn't have the negative emotion of fear. We wouldn't be able to get out of burning buildings. Imagine if we didn't have the negative emotion of grief. We wouldn't be reminded of those we love. And so the problem is, is that we, we don't want to ignore. We're, we're, we're sort of looking at this in, in some ways in a too binary way. Our choice is not to ignore. We shouldn't ignore a regret and we shouldn't wallow in a regret. And actually, in many ways, wallowing in regret is even worse than ignoring it. What we should be doing is confronting it and thinking about it looking at our regrets not as as strangers to ignore and not as these you know uh, black robe judges passing final judgment on our worth as a human being but as a teacher it's a, regrets are a knock at the door it's a signal it's a teacher saying hello i am here to teach you something and if we're open to that it is an incredible force for forward progress and if we close to that we're actually leaving incredible capacity on the table. That's what's so frustrating about this, about this, this, this philosophy, that, this bill of goods that you've been sold your whole life. It's like it's leaving capacity on the table. Yeah, you know what it sounds like, Daniel? It sounds like that meal that you love, but when you look at the recipe, you go, oh, my God, that's in it? You know, I hate onions. <laughs> Who, you, they, you put that in there? And, and, but but it, when you put them all together, those are the ingredients that you need, you know, to have all those tastes. And, you know, here on Growing Boulder, as you know, we, we talk a lot about aging and, and the, the positive aspects and some of the challenges of aging as well. And it sure seems like the more you live, the more regrets you end up storing up. So how do we handle the regrets? of age? Yeah, it's a really, really important question. And, and actually, it's, it's one of the things that was an impetus for, for, for this book for me. There's an old line from 
social psychology or behavioral science in general, like all research is me search. And, and I don't think I would have written a book about regret when I was in my thirties. I didn't, I didn't have enough mileage on me, but in my fifties, it felt kind of inevitable. And one of the things that you see, so some really, really interesting stuff on, on, on regrets and aging. One of the things is that um, when you look at regret, different kinds of regret, we can think about regrets of action. I regret what I did or regrets of inaction. I regret what I didn't do. When we are younger, like in our 20s, people have about equal numbers of action regrets and inaction regrets. But as we age, those inaction regrets predominate. The older we get, the more regrets we have about inaction, about chances we didn't take, about people we didn't reach out to. And I think that what we can do as we get older is actually listen to those and, and listen to the, our most prominent regrets. So if you have a regret about not being bolder, maybe you stayed in a job you didn't like and didn't start a business, you still have a shot in your 60s, in your 70s to do a side hustle, to do something else. So listen to that regret. It's instructive. If you have regrets about not reaching, and I have so many sad stories here of people who wanted to reach out to friends and then the friends pass away. Reach out to people now uh, as you get as you get older. You're not going to regret that. And so what I want people to do is in some ways sort of forgive themselves for having regrets, treat themselves with kindness, disclose your regrets as a way to make sense of them, and then explicitly draw a lesson from them for what to do next time. And I do think that the older we get, you know, there's a lot of evidence showing that we are better at what's called crystallized intelligence rather than fluid intelligence something closer to wisdom is, you know, you know, if we, if we blew it earlier and not listening to our regrets later in life, we should listen to them and act on them while we still have the chance. All right. The, listening to Daniel Pink here, if this was all that was in your book, it would be fantastic, but you take it to another level because you have recommendations in the book as well that are that are fun. I, I don't know if they're all, you know, some of them are tongue in cheek, but they all have a real point to them because you, you talk about starting a regret circle. I mean, it's silly, but it's brilliant. You talk about creating a failure resume. And you talk about like giving yourself the wonderful life treatment where you imagine the world as if you were never born. These these are really simple but really smart ideas. Well, thank you, and and they're they're useful and they're they're not they're not tongue in cheek. I mean, the failure resume. I did a failure resume. Failure resume, which is an idea of Tina Selig, is one of the best ideas I've ever seen. Here's what it is: we all have these resumes, these incredible lists of our accomplishments and how awesome we are. What Tina suggests is that you do the reverse of that, which is that you compile a list of your your screw ups and your mistakes and your setbacks and your flops. But you don't just stop there. You actually then what I did is I I made a, a long list of that. It's embarrassing. It's not something I'm proud of. It's not something that I want to share. But then I made a list next to it, a column next to it that showed what did I learn from that? And that was revelatory because. As I looked over these mistakes and setbacks and screw ups, I realized that in some of them, there actually wasn't a lesson. It was just like stuff happens. It's like bad luck. Things don't work out, you know. Um, but on, on on others of them, I found myself making the same two mistakes over and over again. That the source of these these setbacks, these mistakes, these screw ups, were the same two mistakes over and over again, and that gave me lessons that regret was a teacher that allowed me to avoid making those mistakes 
in the future. And, and, and for me, at least open the way to make entirely new stupid mistakes. I mean, it's it's great. It's liberating, right? If we uh, if we take look at the stupid side of ourselves or the the part that we sort of regret or wish wasn't there, and we make peace with that, it's liberating. It's freeing, and it allows us to move forward. Dan, in the last uh, minute or so, we have anything you'd like to 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 wrap it up with? Do you have a takeaway for us when it comes to regrets? Sure. Um, I think that re- that reckoning with our regrets can be liberating. And what you want to do is you want to actually treat yourself with some kindness. You want to disclose it to other people in a regret circle or a failure resume or something like that. And then you want to draw a lesson from it. And one of the best ways to draw a lesson from it is to say, if my best friend came to me with this regret, what would I tell him or her to do? And when people do that, they almost instantly know what to do. Great stuff. Daniel Pink always brings it, always dives into something really interesting, really at the heart of all of us. And and you can't read his books without coming away feeling better about yourself or seeing a roadmap forward for yourself. Always, always interesting catching up with him. He brings ideas and so many practical takeaways. The book is called The Power of Regret, How Moving Backward Moves Us Forward. It was a great conversation, great discussion. Our thanks to Daniel Pink. Up next, her whole family had breast cancer, so this Emmy Award-winning TV news reporter made some drastic changes to her own life that she believes helped her stay healthy. Bill is going to talk with Ellen Jaffe Jones here on Growing Boulder next. Support for Growing Boulder provided by Calibrate. People who can't lose weight are often focused on willpower instead of biology. The Calibrate Metabolic Reset combines GLP-1 medication, one-on-one video coaching, and a holistic curriculum to help members lose 15% of their body weight on average. And Calibrate guarantees results. More information at joincalibrate.com. I am Bill Schaefer, and this is Growing Boulder, and our next guest is a very bold soul because she wants to help all of us make some big changes, the kind of changes that just might help you live longer, certainly help you live better. And she says it isn't nearly as hard as it sounds. So what kind of changes are we talking about? Basically, it's just two. It's diet and exercise. And she just might be all the motivation you need. Let's say hi to Ellen Jaffe Jones. Ellen, how are you? I'm great, Bill. Thank you for having me on. And I can't tell you how happy I was to be able to reach out to you and find out that you were available to do this. Uh, you know, I, I've I've known Ellen for a very long time. In fact, I knew you in the 70s, Ellen, and I was trying to think back on it. And I don't think that you were a runner. I don't remember that you were on any special diets. In other words, you were just like the rest of us. So what happened? You know, I grew up in St. Louis, uh, right next to the best bakery on the planet. And I, by the time I got to the age of 28, I almost died of a colon blockage. I collapsed in the newsroom. I was a television investigative reporter. And um, they rushed me to the emergency room and they said they'd never seen a blockage so large and somebody so young and I would need to be on medication the rest of my life. It was the same year my sister, who was married to 
lieutenant governor um, and herself ran for the U.S. Senate, had breast cancer for the second time. She was very outspoken about that. And I'm going like, and I was the youngest in my family, so I had a lifetime to figure out what I didn't want to happen to me to the extent you can control your genes, which don't uh, determine destiny all the time. So um, I ran to the house, uh, I ran to the health food store and read all five books on fiber. And because that's all there was at the time and started changing at that point. I want to jump on something you said there. The genes don't determine destiny. Tell us more about why you said that and what we need to understand about that. Well, my mom, aunt, and both sisters would go on to have breast cancer. And even before my mom and my oldest sister got breast cancer, the breast cancer in our family was so well known, because, especially because of my other sister who led a very public life, we became part of the breast cancer gene studies. So now the BRCA1 and the BRCA2 gene testing that you can just go to your family doctor and get, those were part of our family's genes that were part of that research with Myriad Genetics. But we didn't need a gene to tell us that uh, what we already knew, that the gene was alive and well in our family. And I never knew whether or not I had the gene, because some of the studies, they don't tell you, until I went on Medicare and was able to get tested myself. As it turns out, I don't have the gene, but they believe that two of the cases in our family were environmentally triggered because they were late in life. So there is much you can do, and only 10% of all breast cancer cases are genetic anyway, uh, to turn those genes on and off. There's a whole study called epigenetics, what turns genes on and off. And this all became kind of this mission when I was at a 5K race and I coached high school girls cross country and track um, and then just started racing here locally in Florida. And somebody came up to me as I was wearing the shirt, because this is my first book that I wrote, and said, oh, you can't run on a vegan diet. And so it just became this passion to show, yes, we get plenty of protein. Uh, we get plenty of energy. And when was the last time you visited the protein deficiency ward of, of the hospital? You know, cancer and diabetes, heart disease, those are the things we really need to stress about. You get plenty of protein on a vegan diet, which is how I morphed in answer to your question in this whole journey of what would be the healthiest way for me to avoid not only cancer, but heart disease and diabetes, which was actually more prolific in our family than even breast cancer. All right. I want to jump on this because I think there's nobody out there who doesn't think a, a vegan way of life is probably healthier. There isn't anybody out there who hasn't thought about maybe I should get off the couch and run every once in a while. But so few of us do it, Ellen. And, and, and am I wrong? Am I exaggerating things to say that I think you hated running back in the 70s when I knew you? And I d certainly don't think you had uh, dietary restrictions on yourself. How do we motivate ourselves? How do we how do we get that we can do this? Well, I came to veganism strictly from health. You know, first, what, when, when I was going through this whole process, it was a macrobiotic diet, which was basically a vegan diet with white fish, but now we don't want to be eating fish because they eat microplastics, and we don't want to eat that so much. Um, and then vegetarian, and then I learned about, oh, or you just watch the seven-minute video, dairy is scary, and you'll never eat dairy again. I mean, it's another species milk. We're the only species that drinks milk from another species. So nutritionally, we don't need it. And, you know, there's plenty of research now that shows that uh, insulin growth factors in cows make them grow into a, a baby calf, grows into a ginormous cow in a matter of months. And, oh, by the way, it makes tumors grow very rapidly, too. So dairy is just, like, so not necessary for our species. And, you know, so the motivation, yes, you're right. I remember when my sister went through chemo back in those days. I mean, can I say this? She was puking her guts out, just so full of pain and suffering. And, and I saw that up close for 
days, weeks at a time. And I thought, I don't want to ever go through this. And, you know, at that point, I didn't know whether I had the gene or not. But I lived my life as if I did. The whole running thing happened just because I I don't like to be bored. And so, you know, having these amazing earbuds and music, I love music. And to run with music was like this exhilarating thing. People ask me, what are you running from? And my answer is disease. Um, certainly, I've seen it all in my family. And even though I was, and I will say, um, kind of the laughing stock of my two older sisters, oh, you're such a cult member little black sheep you just bring the salad to our family dinner i mean it was all in good humor kind of but they they never got it but the interesting thing is that i now have four cousins all about my age who've all gone vegan because they grew up in our family and they know what the end was going to look like if they didn't do something you know i would say drastic but it really isn't drastic um you know i i became uh kind of on a mission to show people because i would see these uh stories on the news that said you can't eat well, uh, uh, you can't eat healthfully on a budget or on food stamps. So because I was also a financial consultant after I left television at Smith Barney, I thought, you know, how fun would it be to like crunch the numbers on every single recipe and just show how inexpensive beans and whole grains are. And when you cut out the meat and dairy, you have all this money left over to buy produce or join a CSA or a co-op and get produce, even organic produce for cheap or free sometimes. So that's what that book number one was. And, you know, when I thought I moved to Florida, I was going to like sort of kick back and relax. Um, I had done media, media consulting all over the world. And yet this book just took off. And so my publisher said, let's keep writing. So I wrote five more books. And, you know, I, before COVID was running around the country, speaking at all these veg fests and uh, different health fairs and events and, you know, kind of being this model of health and fitness. But really, I did hate running. When we go to races for Growing Boulder to do stories, it it's such an empowering, uplifting community of people that are all there yes. trying to help each other. Yes. And that's the thing I love about it the most is that it crosses the age groups. If you've read the book Healthy at 100 by John Robbins, son of Baskin and, by the way, and who went vegan because he went with his father to all these wealthy clients who were eating a lot of ice cream and were really sick. And so, you know, it is that intergenerational living in these blue zones that is really the most thing that the most uh, important thing that we have in common for living a long and healthy life. For me, the obstacles are, I get home, I'm tired, it's been a long day, I just want to throw something in the microwave as quick as possible and have my meal. I don't know how to cook vegan. I don't know how to shop vegan. How do you say, okay, I think today is the day I'm going to make a difference in my life. How do you start? Oh, Billy, you touched on so many different issues and good questions. Let's start with, um, first of all, if you saw my freezer right now, there's a good chunk of frozen dinners in there. And they make all these, uh, Amy's has an incredible line of uh, vegan dinners, lunches, whatever, a little higher in fat. So, you know, if you're watching your fat intake for cardiac patients, that may be something you're concerned about. Um, so, yeah, cooking from scratch. And people will say sometimes, oh, I mean, you really have to cook from scratch. And I go, well, you don't have to. Um, there certainly are, and I have a lot of ways uh, in my books and coaching how to give you uh, shortcuts how to do that. But, you know, I, the other thing I say is like, you know, if you 
are looking for ways to save time, you don't have time for cancer, heart disease, and diabetes. Those are real time wasters. So I've been through those with my family, my childhood. I grew up in hospitals watching all these relatives just experience all this pain and suffering and and the time. And I, I sometimes say entire generations are losing each other and don't even know it. So, you know, the motivation is there. I have three children, three daughters, and I want to be, if I'm ever so lucky, to be a grandmother, to be a very different um, grandparent than, you know, my parents ever could. And, you know, their doctors smoke for crying out loud. So I don't fault them. It was the information that was available at the time. As I say in this book, uh, there's no money in broccoli. And when you understand that, you have to be your own investigative reporter like I, I was on TV to figure out the truth about food. Um, also, it races. Just let's drill down that point. So important. You can walk an entire race. Nobody will judge you. There are many people who walk races. I had a brother-in-law who entered marathons and was known because he walked the whole thing. And at the time, which was like 30 years ago, he was really an anomaly to do that. Not so much now. There are all different kinds of races. Some are just geared to be more fun fun runs or, or walks, and they support amazing causes, usually 501c3 nonprofits. So, you know, you can look at that. Um, you know, you got to do it in little baby steps. You can't just get there. Uh, talk about how it. the reality is once you start, it's not about work. It's about fun. It's about Anything you did this week more than you did last week is what exercise is. And you start to feel so much better. And do you get rewarded when you go to the physician every year for your annual physical? Do you see a difference in the numbers? Absolutely. And I will tell you, um, I've had my own issues. I was diagnosed with psoriatic arthritis a couple of years ago, and I'm going like, how did this happen? But it turns out my dad had it. You know, it's a genetic thing. When I Googled psoriatic arthritis, I thought, oh, my God, you know, I'm going to be lucky to be walking in a year, let alone running. And so I was connected up with some mutual friends through um, through the work that I've done with Dr. Brooke Goldner, who has a great book out there called Goodbye Lupus. And she asked me to write the foreword to her third book, which is Goodbye Autoimmune Disease, because I went on her protocol, had a one-hour consult with her, which was the best medical doctor appointment I've ever had in my life, where basically I was drinking, I followed her protocol, green smoothies, you know, Vitamix full of greens and anything else, uh, some flax seeds and anything else to make the medicine go down. And within three weeks, the signs of psoriatic arthritis started going away. And she has the before and after pictures, which I sent her. Uh, my, my palms were all cracked and bleeding. My fingernails were coming off, which was just mind blowing. And that by doing this hypernourishment, as she calls it, the the symptoms just went away. And it blew my doctors away, too, because, I mean, we're not immune. Going on a vegan diet doesn't make you immune. You still have to. You can eat any diet unhealthily and any diet to some extent healthily. Um, But there's some things you can't overcome by eating meat and dairy. And it's not we're not saying that you're going to live to be 125 years old either. But the number of good days that you will have in your lifetime will be greatly increased because you're giving yourself the chance to recover, the chance to prevent, the chance to replenish and and look at the active life you're living. Is is that basically the, the main the main message here? It's really about how do you want to live this last stage of your life? And um, you know, certainly and it's in a the choice. race 
Absolutely it is. And it's just not that difficult. I mean, people say, oh, you know, I can't run because of my knees. Oh, and by the way, vegans don't get arthritis, generally speaking. I said psoriatic arthritis, that is a genetic condition. And again, I was lucky I only got the fingers, um, but it can like tear apart your whole body. So the reason is a vegan diet is very alkaline, very anti-inflammatory. Animal protein, you can Google all the reasons for this, but it lodges in the joints and causes inflammation there. And women who used to beat me like crazy 10 and 15 years ago aren't even running anymore. And it's just mind boggling for me to really see that. So especially because we compete in five-year age groups. So I know everybody in my age group, they know me. And, you know, people just kind of are dealing with all these issues, as am I. But, you know, it's like how much, you know, we've got to all die of something. Um, and it's just uh, Michael Greger, who's one of my mentors, um, there's some great vegan doctors out there. I suggest you follow them and follow the doctors and the dietitians and the athletes. You know, he has a great book, How Not to Die. <laughs> That's really what this is all about. Um, as in the book, Healthy at 100, there are cultures of the world where in these blue zones where they live above 10,000 feet, mountainous communities, intergenerational living, and, you know, just one day their heart stops and that's, that's it. So that really is the goal. And then to enjoy life to the fullest, you know, if there's something you want to do that you don't think you can do, this is the time. So, you know, what's the worst thing that could happen? And, you know, for me, this is about comparing how I used to run and improving or at least just maintaining. And with proper training, and if you hire a coach, and as you know, I've competed in the national senior games. And, you know, at the national level, I'm fast enough, but I don't train enough to be super, super fast, just, you know, to be clear about that. There are women my age who are much faster and more trained, but I do all these other things and I'm okay with saying, I don't have to be the best at this. So, Ellen, as National Senior Games you mentioned, isn't isn't it, it it really isn't as much about the competition as it is this incredibly empowering, uplifting community of people encouraging each other to stay vibrant, to stay active, and to stay as healthy as the, as possible. And you know, in the local running community, it used to be thought that you know the Senior Games are just for geezers who are one step away from death's door kind of thing. But I'm telling you, they are super competitive and super fast uh, at, at some at some of the levels there. Is there a downside? Have you discovered, uh, I mean, maybe there's pesticides on vegetables, somebody might say. Is there a downside to, to giving this a try, plant-based vegan diet? The downside is, you know, you may just have to go through a different mindset. But, you know, you get all the nutrients you need except for B12. B12 used to be prolific in our soil, and we washed our vegetables now. Um, as far as pesticides, Dr. Brooke Goldner has written extensively. She reversed her uh, lupus eating conventional vegetables. So eating produce, even with pesticides on it, is still better than than eating animals because the animals are eating plants that have been treated with with pesticides. Um, certainly, you can check out the environmental working groups, uh, the, day, the, the Dirty Dozen for the worst treated uh, produce. Usually, it's things like, I mean, I do buy my, my berries because they are they have thin skins and the, the pesticides can be systemic in, in those two, or the, in, in the berries. But, and same thing with peaches, anything that has a soft skin, you might want to try and buy organic. But that's such a small price to pay for this and all this energy and fun. 
I just hope that we can leave people the idea that, you know, it, their diabetes runs rampant, heart disease runs rampant, obesity is everywhere, so are knees, so are backs. We start thinking that these are inevitable parts of aging. And in some cases, maybe there is some of that, but we have more power. We have more control over our future, over our health, over our bodies than, than we believe. Ellen's amazing. There is so much more to her, the work that she is doing, the inspiration she is sharing, the books she is writing, and the difference she's making. And even if all she did was bring up the conversation in all of our minds, it's definitely worthwhile. And you will want to check her out and keep up with all that's going on with her. And you can do that at her website, vegcoach.com. Our thanks and our gratitude to the uplifting and empowering Ellen Jaffe Jones. Up next, the band Badfinger had some major hits, but also suffered some terrible losses. Guitarist Joey Mullen talks about life after tragedy here on Growing Boulder. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingboulder.com. Miss an episode of Growing Boulder Radio? Subscribe to our podcast and get it on your mobile device. Details at growingboulder.com slash podcasts. You're listening to Growing Bolder, the program that can help you through whatever challenges and obstacles you face. And listen, the unexpected, we don't like to think about it, but it is going to happen to you, to you, to me, everybody. It's something that none of us have any control over. Yeah, the only thing that's certain is uncertainty, Bill. And uh, But what you can control is how you react to that, how you deal with it, and where you come out on the other side. That is all up to you. It's why longevity expert Dr. Roger Landry believes that how we handle the tough times is a pretty good indicator of how fulfilling our lives are going to be. Sure, things happen, but you bounce back. And this is resilience. You bounce back because you have a reason to bounce back. You bounce back because you're strong. You're intellectually curious. You are socially connected. You have meaning and purpose. You want to bounce back. You bounce back. You keep going. Maybe at, maybe at a little lower level than where you were. You got, you got something you have to deal with. But that you are highly functioning. And you keep doing that. And since we can only live so long, there's a, there's a cliff waiting for us somewhere. No one's getting out alive. But... Let's do it at going at our best, you know, spitting, spitting into, the, into the face of the Grim Reefer. <laughs> that is longevity expert and growing Boulder contributor, Dr. Roger Landry. He's a featured presenter at our launch pad to What's Next, which you can see at growingboulder.com. He's essentially saying something that we've understood for a long time, attitude makes a huge difference. Your outlook is what pulls you through life's challenges. And, you know, you don't really 
understand how that works until you kind of see it in action. Because it doesn't mean that you can't be upset when things go wrong. We all go through those times when when we feel lost or beaten down or literally frightened for our lives, losing so many people and things around us. But no matter what, we all only get a certain number of days on this earth. And not a minute more. Bounce back and make as many of those days as possible joyful and grateful. One, two, three, four. If you want it, here it is, come and get it. Do you remember the song, If You Want It, Here It Is, Come and Get It, but you better hurry because it's going fast. I remember that one. It was one of a number of hits for the band Badfinger, but when things fell apart, they had tragic consequences. Only one member of Badfinger is still alive today, guitarist Joey Molland. Bill Schaefer went bolder backstage to hear his story. We were a young band, a bunch of young guys, and uh, just being in a band and playing is one of the great joys of a musician's life. Joey Molland wasn't just in a band, he was in Badfinger, chosen by the Beatles as one of the first and most successful to be signed by Apple Records. And you guys were dubbed the next Beatles. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah, the new Beatles. These, these are, this is what the Beatles would sound like if they got this together. <laughs> That's what they love about us, man. Badfinger was a force. Pete Ham led the way with strong songwriting and vocals, and Tom Evans, along with Joey, combined for some distinctive harmonies. Pete and Tommy could sing like birds. Yeah. You know, I was a bit of a warbler, you know, like a frog in the bushes. <laughs> uh, those guys could really sing, but I had a good ear for a third part, you know what I mean? So. It worked, it worked for me. But after three top ten hits and 14 million records sold, the band discovered they were swindled, left virtually destitute by their agent, Stan Polly. And then, tragedy, when Ham, despondent over being duped by Polly, took his own life. Now we'd written No Matter What, Baby Blue, day after day, and co-wrote without you. It was just totally wrong. Uh, and he went out and did what he did. He said he was going to... Uh, he left a note saying, uh, I hope, uh, you know, I can take that bastard Polly with me. That's, that's what he wrote in his notes. And I don't mean to swear, folks, and use uh, the talk like that, but that's the reality of that. Uh, it, was, it was sad, you know. Badfinger tried to go on without him, but the legal situation just kept getting worse. Then, unthinkably, Evans committed suicide too. Yeah, it was, it was really sad. He called me uh, the day before or two days before. We had an argument on the phone. He wanted to fight. There was a stack of royalties in the bank in London and uh, he was blaming somebody or the other person uh, for it being there. Man, it was... Uh... Yeah, it was a disaster. It was a complete disaster for us. Molland was devastated. He felt that somehow it was on him to pick up the pieces, to carry on, to tell their story and share the legacy of Tom Evans and Pete Ham, and to keep the music of Badfinger alive. And at the age of 74, instead of winding down, Molland is ready to turn it up. Here it is, come and get it. Ooh, make your 
I met this chap, Mike Franklin, uh, who's a promoter, uh, a producer, a uh, player. Uh, you know, he's, he's one of those guys with the music business rolling around in his head, and he knows how to put it in an order. You know, we all have that rolling in our head, but I've got no idea what the order is. It's like just a big jumble. Oh, yeah, I've heard about that. Mechanical royalties, wow, you know, what's, you know what I mean? Who knows? Um, so I'm here today just carrying on what I'm doing. Uh, Michael suggested that we put a Joey Mullins show together, and I've been doing acoustic storyteller shows, and this is like an electric... A uh, properly produced show like that with production and everything, which is the thing we never enjoyed, you know, all those years, even in the even in the he heyday. Knock down the old gray wall and be a part of it all. Nothing to say, nothing to see, nothing to do. That's what I'm doing to them, just carrying on with that. Uh, we're going, we're hoping to go on tour yeah, next year or so, and uh, we're hoping that people will enjoy the stories, and uh, we're going to talk about John Lennon and all that, you know. Let's just do a verse and go right to the yeah. chorus. Well, I can't forget this evening Your face is you leaving But I guess that's just the way the story goes After all you've been through, you still sound grateful and appreciative. Yeah, and well, yeah, yeah. Aren't you for, for the breaks you've had and for the luck you've had? And I mean, do you seriously walk around thinking you're the greatest musician in the world? Because dream on, mister, you know? So just to be allowed to do it, uh, you know, I thank the Lord a lot for what's happened to me. If living is without you, I can't live, I can't live anymore. Actually, look what's happened now, those records are all still on the radio. We all still get checks every month or every two months. Uh, we get royalty payments from Apple and, and EMI and Warner Brothers uh, twice a year. We still get that money coming in and it's enough. Where it's not like super high class, but it's enough to pay the rent. It, it was enough to take my kids all through school. You know what I mean? And all that. Feed my family. So. so of all that you've seen, all that you've done, tell us, what's the moral of your story? What have you learned that's really important in life? You don't know about tomorrow. Uh, you can't worry about yesterday. Uh, you've got to live today, uh, uh, and I'm trying to be trying to be sh smart now, aren't I? But it's just to live my life, uh, and I don't want to screw anybody. I want to be square with people. I want to tell the truth to people uh, that I feel, that, or what I think about this or that or the other. Uh, so that that's how I live my life. You know, I eat regular. I eat regular. I don't. I buy my stuff at the Goodwill like everybody else. Uh, I, I, you know what I mean? And I take, take life as it comes, you know? That's fantastic, isn't it? You know, I've been permitted to do this pretty much all of my life and to still being able to do it. I'm, I'm really happy because my voice is hanging in. You know, I love playing the guitar. I can't play, but uh, not like I used to play it, but uh, I'm just really enjoying it. Really enjoying it. There's one thing before I go. 
Man, what a story. Out of tragedy, the music of Badfinger is still being performed. Their story still being told by guitarist Joey Mullen. Very cool to go boulder backstage into Solar Studio and listen into their rehearsal session. Uh, Bill, they sounded great. What did you think about uh, Joey? Just like you and our listeners, I, I was floored by the guy. What personality. I mean, he, you can't help but like him. He's honest and genuine. And he cares about the legacy of the band, the bandmates who passed on, and the joy that he gets out of performing those songs. You know, Mark, he's 74 and wow. still loving life. Doesn't get any better than that. No, it's great, especially given all he's been through. Nothing to say, nothing to see, nothing to do. When we come back, you'll find out what Mark's been thinking about lately. It's time for On My Mind. This is Growing Bolder. Subscribe to Growing Boulder Magazine, now with more information, articles, and photos than ever before. This quarterly publication is unlike any other, filled with the kind of inspiration you need to live your life to the fullest. More information at growingboulder.com slash subscribe. Miss an episode of Growing Boulder Radio? Subscribe to our podcast and get it on your mobile device. Details at growingboulder.com slash podcasts. Well, this is my favorite part of the program. It's time to take a moment to see things from a growing bolder perspective. We call it On My Mind with Mark, and I'm curious, Mark, what is on your mind today? I got two things, Billy, so I'm going to move very quickly. The first thing, as a lot of you folks know who have grandkids or kids in school, uh, recently was the 100th day of school, and a lot of elementary school teachers celebrate the 100th day by having the kids dress up as a 100-year-old. Sounds hard. But here's what I hate about it. They almost without exception dress up as someone that's decrepit, as someone that's feeble. They've got walkers. They can't see. They're hunched over. And this is the worst lesson, Bill, that we could be teaching kids at this age because one research project after another has proven that by the time we're three years old, we have negative images of aging. So we are basically just planting the seed in the minds of young people that aging is going to be a terrible thing and they are not going to age well. Why can't kids dress up as an active, vibrant 100-year-old? the kind of people that you and I talk to all the time. Because when we were growing up, there weren't any. There you go. Now they're everywhere. It's the rule rather than the exception, and it's inspiring, and it's a message that everybody needs to hear. Yeah, so if you're a teacher out there, if you're a parent, understand that Bill and I have talked to people over 100 who run races, who create original art, who are still running businesses, who are volunteering, making a difference in their communities. 100-year-old is not what it used to be. So, so let's quit reinforcing these negative stereotypes about old people. And the reason is what you like to say, Mark, is what's in your mind becomes reality. So the more active and excited we are about what's coming next, the better off we'll all live. We are doing our best to ensure that kids don't age well when we encourage them to dress up like a feeble older person. All right. The second thing, I told you I had two things. We are opening a bureau, a growing boulder bureau in the villages, Florida, which is the fastest growing metro area in the world right now. We are going to be actually hiring staff there, Bill. And I know a lot of people in the villages 
uh, listen to this radio program. If you're interested in working with Growing Boulder, if you're interested in helping us tell the stories of other villagers that are living a big life, let us know. The villages are so interesting because everything there, life is based on activities, on interest, on clubs, on getting together, on being out. People who live there say they're never in their homes or apartments because there's so much to do. It's it's just a it takes age and makes it what it ought to be, a time to explode into the things you always wish you would have done but never had the chance to do because life got in the way. You know, I'm glad you said the word club because that's one of the things that makes them unique. They've got almost 3,000 different clubs in the villages, but the newest club is going to be the coolest and the best, and that's going to be the Growing Boulder Club. It's not only a social club, folks, it is a service club. We're going to do good. We're going to welcome everybody. So if you live in the villages, uh, look for Growing Boulder on-site, on a daily basis, starting very, very soon. Incredible opportunity. So all we're asking, folks, is if this is you, let us know at feedback at com, And we'll catch you here again soon. The Growing Boulder Radio Show is a production of Growing Boulder, LLC. All rights reserved. This program was recorded at Growing Boulder Studios in Orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Production manager is Michael Nannis. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member, you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder every day. Crimson flames tied through my ears, going high and mighty trapped. Countless fire and flaming road, using ideas as my map. We'll meet on edges soon, said I. Proud me, Peter Brown. Ah, but I was so much older.